back, everyone. It's Aiden, and I'm here for yet another episode of the Push Pull Factor. Can you believe we're on episode number three? And I'm hoping that all of you have been learning a lot from me and from my guests because I only have some more exciting guests lined up, and I have really big plans for the future for this podcast. Episode is actually going to take us back to where this all started, back to my senior year of college. It was there where I took a course called Migration and Refugees, and I started to really get the juices flowing behind this podcast and really got to understand why people move, thinking about, you know, the immigration drivers behind my family immigrating from Jamaica to, to the United States. And I think what interested me the most about the class was the fact that migration does cross so many different disciplines. It's the perfect combination of like society, culture, history, economics, politics, entrepreneurship, international relations. There's a lot of different fields that it ties into. So today I'm actually speaking with my professor from the course and honestly maybe I'll complain about getting an A- instead of an A. I'm just kidding. But it was amazing catching up with her and she has actually spent most most of her academia living and working out of Lebanon, which is one of the migration hubs of the Middle East. Which transitions us over to our first segment of the show, Migration Education. This is the part of the podcast where I provide a quick burst of information related to migration and any of the countries that we'll speak about today. As we all know, a couple of months ago, on August 4th, 2020, the city of Beirut experienced a travesty. A large amount of ammonium nitrate stored at the port of the city of Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, exploded, causing at least 203 deaths, 6,500 injuries, and over $15 billion in USD in property damages, leaving an estimated 300,000 people homeless. That's already devastating, but to bring this back to the context of migration, Lebanon is a refugee hub. They have the most refugees in the world per capita, and not only are they living through a global pandemic like we all, but that's compounded by the aftermath of the blast and the economic situation that was already declining. According to the most recent assessment by the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, Lebanon is currently home to 892,000 registered Syrian refugees. And remember, the keyword there is registered. There's a lot of different contexts of migration. There could be people who aren't registered or people in limbo with their different registered statuses. The crisis in Syria and the proximity of the two nations made Lebanon a natural destination for those looking to flee Syria. To an article that the UNHCR published in June of this year, 2020, on the economic situation of Syrian refugees in Lebanon, specifically, they confirmed that COVID only made the situation worse. There is an average household debt of $1,115 USD. You have to keep in mind that it's really hard for refugees to make money, and they're making money in the local Lebanese currency that's not the most stable right now. So that makes these de- debts even more difficult. So over the past few years, actually, the policy in Lebanon did start to change, and the refugee experience did shift. There were imminent threats of deportation, reports of Lebanese authorities using carefully wording, careful wording in order to trick refugees into signing different forms, saying that they want to return to Syria. And they were also cracking down on bars, cafes, restaurants, different things around the country, but mostly in Beirut that did employ many of these refugees in informal employment situations. I think it really needs to be understood that the situation is so dire that the people of Lebanon, they can't even provide for themselves. 
nonetheless the large amount of refugees that they have to host. That's why there's always been a little bit of contention between the Lebanese and Syrian refugees. I think this is the perfect case to highlight the complexity of migration because it can't be solved just with like simple solutions. So my guest, one of my favorite professors at Babson, speaks more to this and has a lot of interesting stories to tell along the way. So let's get into it. Here with me today, I have Dr. Jennifer Skultiolis. She holds a PhD in Comparative Politics and International Relations from the University of Maryland. She's currently a director of, of the Title IX Office for Equity and Inclusion, and also a research fellow at the Institute for Migration Studies. Also, she was briefly my professor at Babson College. How are you doing today, Jennifer? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's sort of great to speak with you again. It's been quite some time since we've last spoken, I think, when I was your student. So. Yeah, about, well, now it's a, yeah, I guess about a year. Yeah. Yeah. No, year and a half. A year and year a half. And a half. Okay. <laughs> yes, time Spring is kind of a little strange during COVID, I guess, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like time passes very slowly in quarantine. Yeah. I don't, I never know what day of the week it is. Uh-huh. So I guess you can start by you telling us where in the world you currently live and then where in the world you grew up. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, my, I guess Jennifer kind of gives it away in the sense that I'm, I'm an American, my accent too. Um, but I have now lived and worked in Beirut, Lebanon for the past 15 years. So uh, it's been the place that I've lived the longest in my adult life. Um, and I ended up here not because I, I, I studied Middle Eastern politics or anything like that, but I, I married a very nice guy who was from Lebanon. <laughs> and um, there was a, a great job opening at Lebanese American University in Beirut. And, uh, you know, and so I, I took the job and we, we moved back to where he had grown up, but hadn't lived because of the uh, Lebanese Civil War for... Um, I guess when we moved back, he had been out of Lebanon for about 16 years, so a long time. Um, uh, until the age of 18, I grew up in the Boston area, uh, so so that was one of the that was a, a key reason why I was at Babson because I was home for a year visiting, living with my parents. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Boston, and then I went to college in Ohio, Oberlin College, and then kind of from then until I landed in DC, um, I lived in different places uh, for a year, kind of a year at each time, including a year in Lithuania, actually, that that was key, um, in the mid 90s, um, when it was just getting used to being independent again. Uh, and then I don't know how long in DC, maybe about eight years in DC and then and then here. So I have lived in a number of different places. Um, but I guess at this point in my life, I do feel that that Lebanon is home, as well mm-hmm. as still being home, uh, having a home in, in, in the United States. That's you've really won across the map there. You've had <laughs> I did, experiences I did. all over the world. Yeah, it's very impressive. I, I find it very cool. Uh-huh. And I think 15 years in Beirut, you've probably seen a lot of sort of development and change in the city, even over the recent years. Yeah, um, I remember my, my first year teaching in living in, in Beirut was uh, fall 2005. And in that spring, um, 
the Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri had been assassinated in this horrible uh, car bomb attack and the Syrian occupation had ended of Lebanon. And so it was a period of really big change, but a lot of still political upheaval. And they would there would be protests, they'd close the university, then someone would be assassinated, they close the university, then they'd open oh it God. again, then something else would happen, they close the university. So it, it was, uh, I mean, I'd never, I'd studied about political upheaval, uh, but I'd never yeah. lived it. And so yeah. during that semester, uh, an older colleague of mine who had actually been a leader of the Communist Party during the Civil War in Lebanon, oh poked his head into my, you know, in my office and he said, so, you know, Jennifer, how is it to, to live political science and not just study it in the books? <laughs> Um, and I can't really say in polite company what I said to him, but <laughs> basically the thrust of it was, it's not so great. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of all that I've learned and, and experienced, but uh, it's, it's been stressful. And, and uh, when you grow up in the U.S. and you kind of, you're at the kind of the center of world power, maybe not anymore, but when I was growing up, and then you're somewhere else like this tiny country like lebanon um you really get to see power from a very different perspective um so you know so it's enriched my 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 scholarly life um but it, but it's definitely been a stressful way to do that and i think reading something in a book and then experiencing it in real time is vastly different yeah yeah it, it really is although i mean the same thing is now happening in the u.s I mean, in terms of, you know, democratic institutions and rule of law and what you do about protests and elections. And, you know, I, I guess a key thing that we can now really understand is you can't take things for granted that way. You know, changes happen. They can be very good, but they, they can also not be good. Um, yeah. And so... Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely, I think it's an interesting point about the United States, because, like, we grow up thinking, at least in the American education system, like, we're the superpower, we're not a third world country, all these problems don't really exist here, and then you sort of see the reality of the situation that we're in, and you start, <laughs> you start to really think, are we a superpower, like, what's, what does po political science even mean, there's so many different theories, I think the world is changing so much around us, and even... like, even the people at the top, and experts in the field, they're still trying to get a grasp on what's going on in the world. Yeah, I, I would definitely, definitely agree with you. Um, I mean, I, I have two kids. I have an 11-year-old and a 17-year-old. And the way that, and my husband's also a political scientist. So you can imagine we have pretty <laughs> geeky conversations at uh, the dinner table. Um, but we also live in Lebanon. So we have to have these mm -hmm. discussions um, and about what's going on. And yeah, that's something that that we, we often stress a lot. You know, you you, you have to pay attention to the changes that are happening and can't just assume a good thing will keep going um, because a good thing needs support. It needs participation, it needs, you know, people to value it. Um, mm -hmm. So speaking back to Lemonade, there was a blast in Beirut quite a, about a month and a half ago. It sort of was the fallout from that been like, is, are you and your family sort of okay from that? Uh, we, we were lucky enough that we weren't in the country at that point. We uh, okay. were bringing my my older son to school, and uh, we moved him to a 
a high school in the United States um, because of the instability here, which to be honest, I feel, I feel a little guilty about. Um, you know, because when, when you have instability, long-term instability in a country, particularly a small country, and economic instability, it, what it means is that you have a lot of brain drain. Uh, mm-hmm. And though my, my son is only 17, you know, it, it, he's part of that, at least for the time being. Um, but as a parent, I also, you know, uh, wanted, wanted him to be safe. Um, I, I can't really overstate how devastating the explosion was um it like a third they estimate a third of beirut which beirut has about maybe uh a little over a million people and then if you include the suburbs it goes up to about two million but it's a Mm -hmm. densely kind of packed city that doesn't have too many high rises but it, it does have some high rises and um the so about a third of the city was destroyed and the um, the area that was destroyed is really one of the oldest, was one of the pr- prettiest and most kind of vibrant neighborhoods. It, it, neighborhoods where there were you know old buildings and new buildings. There were definitely wealthy people. There were um, poorer people. A lot of restaurants and cafes and artistic spaces and you know, NGOs putting up like a, you know, a Sunday flea market or just a a lot of, and, and this is critical for, for Lebanon, a lot of different religions mixing. People didn't ask you, you know, which religious background are you? They're like, whatever, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, sexual minorities um, was a place to to be where you wouldn't be threatened. and that that was all blown up. I mean, and it just even now when a lot of the uh, rubble has been cleared away, I live at the very edge of that neighborhood, um, and so we had some broken windows and a couple broken doors, but we were incredibly lucky; no other damage, and no one was home. Um, but you find little, you find glass all over the city, and you. <laughs> And you are walking someplace you think that it is too far away to the bla- from the blast to have been affected, and you look up and you see someone's balcony just decimated, or you look up and you see a building and half of its windows are still out. Um, so it, as if all of the d- actual destruction weren't bad enough, we're in the midst of a, a massive economic collapse. So the current, the local currency has lost about 80% of its value. And so people don't have the money to import things. And it's a tiny country, doesn't have a lot of industry. And so there's a glass shortage, you know, and to pay for the glass, you you know, it's money that you, you don't, you know, you don't have. Um, A lot of people are unemployed. I, I mean, so I, I heard from my mother-in-law that um, I think it was a, was it a French newspaper? It was a, a, a European newspaper had written right after the blast, um, Beiruteshima, as a, as a kind of reflection of Hiroshima, but here, mm. it was a non-nuclear blast, 
but it was absolutely devastating. And the fact that only, only 200 people died is, uh, is absolutely amazing, but um, de devastating, it's devastating. Just wow, I don't even know how to react to that. It's, I, just, yeah. it's such a, it seems like such a cultural loss too just like the center of the city just the time it's in it it is it's a it's a loss in, in so many different ways and i think it 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 really accelerated also um the exodus of people can go to go um and when it one of the things uh you know when, when you and i were talking earlier you know about about migration and um, and the class that, that, you know, you took of mine, the refugees and migration, you know, what finally pushes people to go or mm -hmm. what draws people, you know, pulls people away from a country and the blast, um, just pushed a lot of people saying, okay, this, I'm done, I'm done. And I'm just going to go and I'll figure it out, you know, if I can come back later or whatever, but I'm just going to leave. So people who have second passports, you know, a non-Lebanese passport, uh, students who could transfer abroad and get student visas. Um, and then of course, people who have really no options and are facing um, the other crisis, which is food. Uh, Lebanon imports a lot of its food, um, particularly grain and things. And so now people are so impoverished, the country is import, isn't importing enough food. Um, and so poor people are starting to go hungry, which is, which hasn't happened in Lebanon since the famine at the end of World War One, when the Ottoman Empire was collapsing. Mm -hmm. So oh, wow. you, you have people who are now trying to take boats and get to Cyprus. And the Cypriot government, of course, is if it feels sorry for them, but she's like, no, no, we are not taking people this way. Yeah. And the crossing isn't huge, but it's not small either, a short distance. And so people are dying. Um, and this is horrific, what I'm about to say, but I, it, it really demonstrates just how bad things are. A body was recovered from the sea um, near one of the beaches north of, of Beirut by about, I don't know, 20 miles. And they don't know, and they're trying to figure out if the person lost his life trying to leave the country to seek refuge somewhere else, or is one of the missing people from the Beirut explosion. Wow. I read that and I, I was just like, what, uh, what, do you, what do you even say? What do you say to that? That's just... So you may be wondering why I'm still here. <laughs> um, uh, we are really lucky that my my husband and I still have uh, good jobs at the university. Granted, our, we're, we're paid in the local currency, so mm. it's we've seen that plummet. But you know, we have we have a house. Um, uh, we have uh, our son is in a really sons are in both really good schools. My in-laws are here, um, and they're getting quite old. Uh, and in particular, as a critical part of all this, my husband's really active in civil society to try to improve things. Um, so 
we we want things to improve. We right now we we have enough cushion that we hope we can help with that. Um, you know, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it's good that you have your familial network there to sort of yeah. given the situation sort of help you get through everything in this in Lebanon right now. So I understand your educational background played a bit of a role in your stories. I just want to take a step sort of there, sort of what sh- and sort of what shows you to pursue your PhD in comparative politics and international relations. So I guess one, I wanted to start. Were you always on that path yeah. to academia, or was there a certain catalyst that pushed pushed you there? Well, um, actually, I, I'm for, first not actually not totally first generation college. My my grandfather on my my dad's side was an electrical engineer in Moscow and then in Riga, in Latvia. And um, when World War I came to Eastern Europe, Latvia was one of the countries that was stuck between the Nazis and the Soviets. And so it had three occupations. It was occupied by the Soviets first then by the Nazis, and then by the Soviets again, and then the Soviets stayed, you know, until until 1991. Um, So with that, the advent, when the third occupation was coming, um, my grandfather and grandmother with two, with their two kids at that time, they were Germans, German speaking Latvians. Um, uh, And so they were like, okay, this my grandfather knew what was happening in, in the Soviet Union. He was like, this is not going to be good for us. And so they were, were not Jewish. Um, and they, so they moved west in further into Germany until they finally reached near the, at the end of the world war, the American sector. And my dad and his family lived in a um, displaced persons camp in Hamburg, Germany for, uh, I guess a little over five years. And then in 1950, they got visas to come to the US and they settled in Boston. Um, My mom's family are much more kind of stereotypical uh, Boston folk in that both her parents were born and raised in Ireland and then came over to Boston as adults. but so, you know, so growing up, I was, I was the daughter of, a, of an immigrant and my dad, you know, became very, very American, um, you know, has a strong, actually Boston accent, a really great Boston accent. And, uh, but it, Latvia is a tiny country. Uh, and so there was always a very strong sense of this Latvian identity. And so when I was in, in college <clears throat> in the late eighties and then early nineties, that's when communists Europe started falling apart, you know, and the, the, the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe, and then 1990, 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it was absolutely amazing to watch this unfold as a political science undergraduate student. I, I was just fascinated. And so it had really drawn me into political science and then it really kept me there because then once I figured out I really liked research um, and I liked teaching, I was like, okay, I want to get a PhD. I want to better understand how how societies transition when 
when rev when do revolutions come why do they come at the time that they do and not another time who's involved who has to be involved um, in order for them to work and how can you build the society that is more humane um, which is what most of Eastern Europe was able to do uh, and I had some fantastic East European professors um, Vladimir Tismanyanu a Romanian um, dissident came to the US uh, you know Bart, Bart, um, Bart Kaminsky uh, there were Karen Karen Dewisha. I mean, there there are really some fantastic people. So it was a, a you know a, a timing a, t a timing mm -hmm. thing, uh, as well as just a general interest in politics. Yeah, I can definitely see how that played out, sort of driven by the situation in the world. Sort of that makes sense because in nine, I like, think so many countries formed in that time and were figuring yeah. out their national identities. So probably. So it created such an interesting problem of like where are these countries going to go, which ones are succeeding, which ones are failing, or quote unquote failing, and why. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Was there a particular region of the world that you focused on? Like, did that drive you to focus on Eastern Europe, or did you sort of still have a general approach to sort of um, your studies? I I focused on Eastern Europe. I, uh, you know, I I wanted. Um, yeah, no, I focused on Eastern Europe, and I was able actually when I graduated from college I had I had no money so I, I had to find <laughs> something that I could do that I could sustain myself with and so I found a teaching job teaching English in Lithuania um, and it, even though my family was my father's family is from Latvia it, you know, anyway I ended up in Lithuania and that further pulled me in because the three Baltic states were were, were different. They were very similar in some ways to the, uh, you know, Poland, what became the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, Hungary. But in other ways, they were really different because they had had that much longer kind of under um, under Russian control and then under real Soviet control, not satellite states, but really, really under the Soviet Union constituent parts. And so Living in Lithuania in 1994, 95, I mean, they were just starting a new banking system. Um, they still had things like um, pu public lighting would go off at nine o'clock because there was no money to pay for it. Uh, he, during the Soviet period, um, they often built buildings with centralized like hot water in the city. So different quadrants of the city would get hot water on different days of the week, you know? So mm. I remember as a, as a funny story, um, I was teaching, I had three jobs, like a lot of Lithuanians in order to make ends meet. And I was teaching English literature at a, at a start up Christian men's college, St. Casimir's. Anyway, I, uh, so I was teaching this and um, after class, it was a very small class, I think like 10 students. And I was only, remember I was only 24, 25 at the time. My students were not that much younger than I was. And one of the students came up to me and said, um, teacher, in Mokitoya, how they call you in Lithuania. So teacher, I just wanted to let you know, if you ever want to come to my place to take a shower, you're welcome. 
<laughs> I was floored. I was my first time teaching. I, I was like, okay, maybe I, I'm missing something here. I've got to be missing something here. <laughs> and so I talked to the other American there with me. Once he got off the floor from laughing so hard, like, I don't know, you are missing something, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, so I, I finally got up, you know, my the guts to ask um, a Lithuanian who spoke English well. And after she too finished laughing, she was the one who told me about the circulating hot water and how it was a he The student must have heard that I lived in a cold water building have any hot uh. water ever. So if you wanted a hot shower, you had to, you know, heat the water on the stove and you had to, you know, have anyway, which is what I did. And he said he thought that that was so horrible that he did what they used to do during the Soviet period, which would have, you know, sh kind of shower nights where you would take some item of food that you had and your bar of soap and your towel, and you would go to a friend's place and each of you would take take a turn taking your own shower. Orange. It wasn't anything more than that, you know, and you would have kind of a, a little dinner, a party while each person was taking mm -hmm. their, you know, subsequent showers. Anyway, so it's a long anecdote mm -hmm. to say that um, it was really a you know, specific region, the transition they were going through, um, and also at a very deep level, Comparative politics. Comparative politics really cares about the culture and the specifics of a society. I also love international relations, international affairs, but then you're not looking so much at the specifics inside the country. You're looking at kind of the whole system and how countries end up treating each other. Um, mm. So, so I, my first love is really it is comparative politics. Politics getting down deep into what a country is like and and if you can to try to figure out why is it that way i can definitely see how that itself is probably a very interesting problem sort of getting down to the nitty-gritty intricacies of like why is a society not working or why is it working yeah. exactly sort of shifting to your move to lebanon i guess what was the initial reaction from your family when you're just like i'm gonna live in lebanon for now <laughs> i think they, I mean, they were totally surprised. I had, a, you know, mm. I'd married this Lebanese guy um, <laughs> five years before, <laughs> uh, and they knew that academic jobs were and are still hard to get. Um, and so, uh, when I got, you know, what was a great job opportunity, I think they they understood, and they just hoped it was for a few years, not for the fifteen that it, that's been. <laughs> Um, but it, one of the, there were a few catalysts also that were pushing us out of the U.S., I think. Um, so it was 2005. We had just one child then, and he was a year and a half when I took the, he, he had just turned two when we moved here. And we had been living in Washington, D.C., so both, I had just finished my doctorate. I was working full time. My husband was working full time, and he was working on his doctorate, and we had a toddler. Um, we never, we never saw each other. We were kind of, you know, on split duty. All of our money went to a good daycare. Um, we were, we were really stressed. Uh, Washington is great, but Washington is also very stressful and, and expensive. And, and so we thought, 
you know, this would be good to go to Lebanon. We'll have more support as the young family. We can pay for that. We'll have Makram's family with us. My parents were and still are in the Boston area. Um, and, you know, Jen will have this meet. I'll have this great job. Uh, and our, our son will also uh, learn Arabic and, and French um, and not, not just English. Uh, so there, there were a lot of pushes in there that I think, I think my parents understood. And in, indeed, when my parents have only visited us uh, once in Lebanon, unfortunately, um, but that was in 2009, where after the birth of our second son, and I remember at one point, um, I had brought my dad and my mom to visit the university, which is really a lovely setting in Beirut. And then later that day, we were up at the old family house in the mountains, which is this old stone Lebanese house. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're, they're really lovely with this kind of stereotypical Mediterranean clay tiled roof. Uh, you know, it, it's just lovely, Mediterranean climate. And at one point, my dad looked at me and he said, oh, and, and the third thing, and he had visited the school of the older son, which is this great place in an icy Beirut. So my dad looked at me and he said, I can see why you stay. You're, <laughs> you, you and Makram have, have built a good life for your, yourselves here. Uh, my mom wanted none of that. She was like, I want you home. <laughs> <laughs> and, and indeed, every time something blows up, which unfortunately happens with much regularity in Lebanon, mm. protests, you know, all different problems. It's like, I don't get it. You know, just come back. Mm. What? Why? Why are you staying there? I think, so. I think my family had the same reaction when I was like, I want to study abroad in South America. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> big change from, from my sister's Europe experience. So. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like a sort of Shifting more to your current situation in Lebanon, sure. I'm sure you've lived some varied and interesting experiences, probably a lot of cultural mishaps. But I wanted to know the general perception of people from the United States in Lebanon. I guess, did you mm-hmm. uncover any misconceptions? Um, let's see. Uh, something I've always really uh, been thankful for with Lebanese um, and I, my Arabic continues to be poor. And I know this must be a shock for people. You've been there 15 years. Um, but one, Arabic is hard. You have literary Arabic, which, every, you know, and then you have the local dialect. And they're kind of two separate languages, effectively. So, um, and, then, and then I speak French, albeit badly. So between French and English and um, my bad Arabic, it's, I can do absolutely everything and, and, and get through my day. So I, I know a lot of people, but at the same time, I don't have tremendous interactions you know, with, the whole, with the whole country. And I'm in a private university, so I end up seeing the wealthier students, kind of the wealthier milieu from, from the country. But I've, you know, I've now seen tons and many, many, many students, and with very, very few exceptions, they have always kind of separated out Jennifer as, you know, or they would call me Dr. Jennifer as a person and the United States. 
Um, and mm. the reason I say that is because Lebanon gets tr- is tremendously affected by what the United States does. Um, and the U.S. support, you know, for, for Israel, the U.S. support for some aspects of Lebanese political life and, you know, their animosity towards others, um, you know, the, the Iraq war, the Syrian war, uh, the U.S., plays a really big role here. And at that very same time, Lebanon has always, has very long, for a long time, 150 years, been a country of emigration. It's too small to really keep all the people that that grew up here. And uh, so people, people leave, and a huge number of them have gone to the U.S. So you meet so many Lebanese who will say, oh, I have relatives, and it will be <laughs> either in Michigan, uh, <laughs> California, <Dearborn>. Texas, <laughs> or then Virginia, um, in kind of in that order. And then they'll also be in other places. But, uh, you know, so they have this, and a lot of people speak English well, and they watch America, they know American pop culture really well. Um, and so on the one hand, they have this warmth and affinity with the United States. And then at the same time, over time, there's been at least kind of one period for every single Lebanese where the U.S. has really done something that had a negative effect on that person, you know, or her family. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so... They know what's going on in the U.S. because it matters to them. They don't understand why Americans don't know more about the world and are largely so ignorant about the world. Uh, and and yet people, you know, I've had, uh, you know, students who are, I remember one protest at the university, they were protest, the, protesting then the then ambassador, I forget his name right now, but uh, coming to visit to the to the university to deliver scholarship money. So this, the U.S. government is always very good to Lebanese American University. It, you know, gives a lot of, of money to support it. So the, the students were protesting American foreign policy, but they benefit from the scholarship. And I remember seeing a few of my students protesting and I was walking by and one of them saw me and they waved, hi, Dr. Skulti, nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what I took from that is the world is a complicated place and yeah. Lebanon's feelings towards the U.S. and are complicated. But a really lovely, lovely component of, of almost all Lebanese is also a real kind of warmth and, and they like people and like to engage with people. And so, you know, mm-hmm. being from America, uh, people can, uh, again, they'll try to find a connection with you. Oh, do you know my my cousin in Texas? <laughs> like, I'm from Boston. You know, there's almost 400 million people in the U.S. But anyway, um, so I, I hope that ans- answers your question. I mean, I, I guess I could answer it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. But. You know, that, that answered it. I think it's very, very complex. It's like a simultaneous, like, political contempt, but, like, social, cultural adoration. Yeah, that's a a very concise, uh, yeah, that's an excellent way to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. I guess something sort of going on the student point more, something I'm curious about is how the sort of the students differ in the United States and Lebanon. 
So I know Babson may have been quite of a weird lens teaching migration to business students. Yeah. But I guess from my experience, a lot of Babson kids tended to undermine the liberal arts classes. But yeah. do you find there's a major difference in student behavior or not exactly? Um, one of the things that, uh, that always really strikes me is that because the U.S. remains so wealthy and it's so big and there there are jobs i i know that the the that the economy is is having a difficult time now in some ways because of covid but you you can you can build a life in the us that uh it's is is very open i i how do i describe this better. You can decide to stay in your hometown, you can decide to move, you can decide to enroll in community college to try for an Ivy mm. League. You can, of course, money and lack of it is a, is a big uh, issue for Americans, but there is a lot of support for students that doesn't, and for people that doesn't totally force you to be reliant solely on your family. Um, in Lebanon, the economy has been a mess for a very long time. They now estimate that over half the population is unemployed. Um, people rely on their families in ways that maybe Americans of, I don't know, the Gilded Age and before would better understand, but you have to rely on your family. Um, luckily, Lebanese also, you know, value family and they, they build a lot of good things into it. But, <laughs> but you you live with them. You live in small spaces. You It's how you get everything done. And the state just really doesn't help you in almost any way and kind of puts up challenges to you, you know, left, right and center. So this is all kind of background to say that when I see students in Lebanon, they are very acutely aware if they come from wealthy families that, you know, okay, I, I'm really lucky, I can benefit from this money, I can, you know, either do what I want in Lebanon or I can leave. Poorer students have a much, a, a strong sense that like, I have this opportunity, if I mess this up, not only am I going to suffer, my whole family is going to suffer. I cannot let that happen. And so they, it, you might have seen it in, um, definitely in some American students, uh, but I would say oh, more in international students who are there and they seem so laser focused. And that's not students who come from very wealthy families abroad. I'm not talking about that, but mm -hmm. like scholarship students who are, who are, who are, have that laser focus. So I, I would, that's the big difference that I see. Um, and just to, you know, as, as an anecdote, I remember I was maybe in my second or third year of teaching. So I still was culturally often kind of just clueless. I had this master's degree student who had been kind of passed on to me because the advisor just couldn't seem to help her. And she was sitting in my office and she burst into tears and she said, I don't want to be in this program. It was international affairs. And I said, 
mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I, all people feel that way at some point. You know, I was working through it that she just felt, you know, that she wasn't good enough or I, I, don't, I don't know. She said, no, no, you don't understand. My father enrolled me in this program. I don't want to, I don't like politics. I don't like international relations. And I was kind of floored. I'm like, I was looking at a, at a 23 year old woman and her, uh-huh. you know, and then a couple years later, I had a mother call me up and say, I need to talk to you about my daughter. I think it was a daughter, but anyway, my daughter and her, her master's thesis. Like, uh, I need to talk to your daughter about your master's thesis. (laughs) thesis. Um, Anyway, so I've had parents sit in on discussions about master's theses, you know, and that Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that happening in the United States. But again, you know, here it's it's a it's a family thing. Mm -hmm. And people when you meet people, you know, in Lebanese, you ask, you're the house of what? It's very biblical. You know, it's, I'm uh-huh. house of always. It's like, oh, okay. So your family's from here and there. They're this religious background. Oh, they're a good family. They're a not good family. It matters. Um, and so so that would, I would say, would be kind of the mm. difference that I saw. Um, I, can, I can see how that happens. A lot of the familial oversight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that going over too well in the United States, but I'm sure some parents have tried. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I mean, I, <laughs> well, I, at Babson, I didn't have any helicopter parents, okay. but I, I, I would imagine that there are at least some. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I worked at our study abroad office, so I encountered quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Probe further, sort of on this academic lens, sort of, sure. do you think those differences sort of played out in the field, I guess? how academia worked in Lebanon and how people became professors and then how sort of it operates in the United States? I, I would say that in general, in general, Lebanese seem to value education a little bit more than Americans do in general. Um, I know mm-hmm. this is a very, that's a, a big statement to make, but, um, but for example, the public s- school system here is only like a third of, of kids are in the, less than a third are in the public schools. Private school systems, it's two thirds of the kids. And that's because the public school system's underfunded and it's very politicized. And and so Lebanese families will do anything to get their kids in good schools and to get a good degree. Um, but that also means that you have a lot more students who go into engineering, want to be medical doctors, want to be in computers, um, finance until there was basically an economic collapse. Um, And and many fewer people who go into the social sciences or the humanities because it's viewed as something, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to become a politician if you study political science? It's like, uh, no. No. our students end up going to work for um, international organizations like UNHCR, you know, the, the UN High Commission for Refugees, because Lebanon has the highest per cap, highest number per capita of refugees in the entire world. We have over a million out of a population of 
six million. Um, so we have a huge number of refugees. And, and so our students go end up working for NGOs, for IOs. They, they get really good jobs, but you have to be um, really, really committed to the social sciences and commit and, and convince your parents <laughs> that this is a good <laughs> thing. Uh, or have come from a family that can pay for it more easily um, to go into it. Uh, so, actually, Lebanon ends up ends up exporting medical doctors, <laughs> engineers, and I would say that we there. You know, a lot of our students go on to do the PhD, to do master's degrees. It's really it's really quite stunning. Um, so. At the, at the end, kind of to wrap up that, that answer, I don't know if it's so different, but I, ha I haven't had as, a, as much teaching experience in the US. So, um, mm -hmm. and when I was at Babson, you're, you're a very special group, a very special <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, undergraduate place. So. And I can, I can see how Babson can be very tangential from the, I guess, yeah. an average American college. Yeah. So I guess, were there any aspects of everyday life that you were surprised by when living in Beirut, I guess, within your first year? Um, I get, you know, in some ways now it's hard to look back because I'm, I've, <laughs> I think, acculturized quite a bit, but, um, that's true. But something still amazed me, like people that you've met once remember your kids' names and their general ages, which I, I find just really impressive. But it also speaks a lot to Lebanese love kids and they really engage with children and, and indeed having children. And I have two sons, so that's also a big deal in the Arab world. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, but saying you have children and then people really talk to you about your your kids and where you're from again putting you in this family kind of network in a way that mm -hmm. doesn't happen nearly as much in the west i think uh on a day-to-day -day basis and then also everybody kind of knows everybody else um <laughs> i you know you beirut has over a million people but you you end up bumping into people as you know all the time or you meet someone new and you find out you have a friend in common or ties it, you know just it's it's a very um net, networked kind of place and i think that's allowed lebanon to withstand a lot of its economic and political problems um but also in a bad way it's it's made it since people can stand it, there hasn't been the absolute necessity to change. And now we're kind of at that position where, you know, is the country finally going to fall off the precipice? You know, it, it, is it going to finally become, really become a failed state? Not a failing, but a failed state. And, and what what is that? I mean, you know, things are bad enough for a lot of people, as I was saying, kind of at the beginning of our talk. But 
now kind of a thing that's really been taken away from people with COVID, and I know this is affecting people worldwide, but you can, people can withstand a lot, but if you can withstand a lot when you have your, your support networks, you know, being able to see parents, being able to see friends, having all those little interactions during your day, you know, the, the woman who serves you coffee at Starbucks in the morning, saying hello to your postman, you know, all this stuff. And with the lockdowns and with people wearing masks and everything, you can't have those sort of social interactions right now. And um, people are all over the world are suffering from that. And I think Lebanese are kind of suffering more because that was in a, in a sense, I, I don't mean to belittle anyone else's mm. suffering, but it was their one true way that they could cope with all of the dysfunction around them. Yeah, well, I feel like when the sense of community is so strong and it's pretty much Lebanon's backbone and sort of that's yeah. breaking right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I think it's a good sort of transition point to you sort of bringing up COVID and the global pandemic that we're currently living mm-hmm. through. I think it's quite interesting that like borders are closed, but the motivation I feel like to leave one's country may be, may be at an all time high. So I think it's a very interesting <laughs> dynamic. No, most definitely. But first I want to ask sort of how has the situation been handled in Lebanon as a whole regarding COVID? You know, at the beginning, we're... The country was kind of heralded as this is a way to do it. You don't need to be power, wealthy and powerful to, to have an impact. By March 1st, they were kind of shutting things down about, you know, travel over the borders. Then March 5th, uh, and they closed schools. March 1st, they closed the schools. Oh, and oh, wow. then by March 15th, they said it's a total lockdown for I think two or three weeks, complete lockdown. You're not supposed to be out of your house, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, And there were a handful of new cases a day. No one was dying. Um, This, and then they had a whole plan that they publicized very clearly about how we're going to reopen and the staging of our reopening and all of that. And, They didn't reopen the airport until I think like mid-June, so it was three months later. Uh, But then once they opened the airport and you had all these Lebanese coming home from where they had been stuck in the world, you started having an uptick in cases. Uh, But then also just we're in the midst of an economic collapse. People were like, I can't sit home. I have to try to work. Um, I have to go out to feed my family. Um, and so uh, cases started edging up and still for whatever reason deaths were not the mortality rate was not as high as it was in like Italy or Spain or the United States and no one could really understand it but they were like okay we're, we're lucky in this way uh, and then the explosion happened and kind of all went to hell <laughs> And um, within three weeks, just as they estimated, because of all the people rushing to hospitals and all the, you know, the mixing and everything, the case numbers has, have exploded. And so today was a new high. There's been a new high, daily high every day this week, I believe, except for one 
and it was 1,200 new cases and still under 10 deaths, but we didn't have it before the explosion, the hospital capacity, and now we really don't have it because three of the main hospitals were, were flattened, so to speak. So once that happens, I mean, again, the economic collapse, we, um, we're having a hard time buying the medications we need from abroad, uh, the different medical equipment, then there's the roll, you know, the rolling blackout. Uh, the government owes over a billion dollars to private hospitals. Private hospitals, unsurprisingly, are the backbone of the medical system in Lebanon because everything is private here mm -hmm. because the government is so um, kind of absent. Uh, so that's the schools are supposed to open on October 12th. But maybe the final thing, because I, I mean, I could talk about the, the COVID situation for a long time, but <laughs> the COVID shutdown in some ways was heaven sent to the political class because it ended what had been months of strikes, massive protests, pressure on the government to resign, to finally institute some key reforms. And suddenly there was no one in the streets. It was illegal to be in the street. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be out in, you know, once we could be outside, then no more than a few people in any one location. And so I think also the government, while on the one hand, they don't want to see COVID, you know, the pandemic just wreak havoc. But given how clearly unconcerned they are with human life in Lebanon, since they stored the you know, the corruption led to massive explosion in the Beirut port. They think, we think, we still don't know, and I doubt we'll ever know. Um, but uh, they, they don't care so much. And so I think they'd probably prefer to keep us all, you know, kind of locked down, wary of being in public so that they can just continue to go on their best, their best. Um, and that's, I am usually, as you might remember from our class, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I think if you want mm -hmm. to study political science, you, you have, have to, to think somehow that, that human beings are capable of making things better. And, and, and right now, I, I'm feeling more pessimistic, I think, than I ever have um, about how ordinary people can change corrupt leaders uh, and to do so mm. without massive bloodshed. And and I, I find that really, really depressing. Yeah, I think it's a difficult time, especially for those cultures where demonstration, I feel like, is a more accessible thing. I think in the States, it's not really that common, but then I think That's outside true. the States and other cultures, like demonstrating especially amongst the student population and younger population is such is so embedded in the public culture that i feel like i don't even know if they know how to sort of collect i think under the circumstances they might not even know how to demonstrate and sort of collectively bargain with the powers that be oh, i think you're right seeing covid more worldwide so with the mobility being so limited sort of what is the field thinking because obviously people are still trying to move and sort of get to new countries I'm kind of of two minds, maybe. On the one hand, internationally, 
I think the, the world is suffering by people not being able to move as freely as they did uh, pre-COVID. Now, when I say freely, <laughs> I, it wasn't all that free, right? Um, you know, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of um, obstacles to people moving to where they want to be <clears throat> and living how they want to be. But, but I guess sounding like a Marxist for a moment that, you know, <laughs> labor was allowed to move as long as it was tightly controlled. Uh, and it benefited benefited wealthy countries, and it had some benefits for poorer countries. That's largely been cut off. And I think countries are going to increasingly suffer, whether it's agriculture in the US, not having, you know, having the people they need, or engineers, they need more engineers in the US. Or from countries like Lebanon, where people want to leave, and they have nowhere to go to. And so that is creating more volatile conditions inside of Lebanon. So on the one hand, there are all those pressures to, to push things open. But, you know, we, we've seen this kind of retrenchment and, you know, closing of borders and reduction of international trade before, um, you know, after World War I. And, and so it's not something that's... Um, you know, when I was talking earlier about you can't just assume things will continue on in a good way and that you definitely can't con assume that things will continue to get better or improve. And I think international trade, international movement of people is just that sort of area. Um, I So I don't know how, you know, what we'll end up seeing. Of, I, I assume it will be kind of it would be different across the world, so in different in different contexts, but we'll have all these pressures for, you know, people to move, um, high-skilled and so-called low-skilled, um, but more like just low-paid. Uh, there'll be mm -hmm. pressures pulling them to countries and pressures pushing them out of their home countries. But there'll also be a lot of people who will say, you know, I kind of like it this way. I don't want all of this movement like there was before. And I'm going to try to, you know, whatever my, how the power I have to affect things, I'm going to try to keep it that way. So I, I think we'll see that kind of battle. Um, we see it playing out in the U.S., I think definitely. We see it playing out in Europe. Um, we see it playing out in Lebanon in terms of, you know, what the role of, of migrant labor is here. Um, and you know, who should replace it. We still need people, you know, to clean and we need people to pick the crops and all these things that are very hard work and don't pay that much. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of Lebanese don't have jobs anymore. So are they going to do it? Or are we going to continue to the way we did before to import people from much poorer countries? to do those sort of, sort of jobs. But now they don't want to come because they don't want um, a worthless currency. They want to be paid dollars and, hmm. and Lebanon just doesn't have dollars to pay them. I definitely think it's an interesting path forward for Lebanon. I can't even sort of begin to wrap my head around like the complexity of it because I think every issue sort of drives another. 
Yeah. Sort of so sort of shifting the conversation back to sort of your you and your migration journey. Mm-hmm. For any migrant who may be in similar shoes, do you have any advice to offer sort of to make the most of their journey, sort of making the most of a new life in a new country? Well, I I turned fifty last year, so I think that's mm-hmm. always a, a big milestone. You know, if you if you reach it, it's a it's a good thing. You're also kind of oh my god, I'm not young anymore. Um, but Kind of when I was assessing, you know, kind of looking back on my life, um, you know, I have very, very few regrets. But one of the regrets that I do have, and luckily, I, I'm very, very lucky that way. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the few regrets I do have is that when I moved here, I did just make a point to just learn Arabic right away. Just tell, you know, my in-laws, my husband, okay, for the next, you know, three, six months, only speak Arabic to me. I don't. I don't care what it is. You just, just don't do it. And then in my free time, as it was back then, um, you know, with the, with the two-year-old at home and a full-time job, uh, study Arabic. Um, as as I've, you know, now lived here 15 years and I've kind of settled into things. It's harder to learn the language because I mm-hmm. I don't need it. I've gotten used to doing things in certain ways. Um, so I would say to anyone, you know, really do try to learn the local language so that you can can really engage in in the culture and in the society um, and not, you know, I've, I've made some wonderful, wonderful friendships here and, you know, I, I like living here, um, but I'm, I'm sure my knowledge of and kind of connection with the country would be that much broader and deeper if I spoke Arabic. Fluently. That makes sense. I feel like with some Arabic you could fully sort of fully engage with the Lebanese population. Yeah. yeah. So shifting to my very last question, which is mm-hmm. a staple that I ask every guest, okay. is your migration journey over? Do you see yourself returning to the United States or maybe living in another country or do you think Lebanon Lebanon is your forever home? You know, Lebanese ask each other this question all the time. Um, I was asked this question today. So are you going to leave anytime soon? Um, and sadly for Lebanon, that's kind of the way it is. Um, I actually uh, emphasized to my husband, uh, like last week or something, I forget what had happened that day. Oh, there was there was a big explosion in, this, in southern Lebanon that we don't, totally understand but it, that happened there was a fire at uh at the tripoli port in northern lebanon and then something else happened and so people were very on edge and we were talking about those things and um i said I, you know and dealing with them and and then i said but if it if fighting starts here i'm not staying and I, I got very deadpan and kind of very serious. And my husband looked at me and also got very thoughtful and he said, I know, I know you're not. And that, in a sense, that kind of breaks my heart, not because I don't think it's, it would be a good decision for me to leave with my kids um, if, if, you know, a war broke out, but because it, it, it comes all the closer, my husband in particular works so hard and is so invested in 
seeing Lebanon be a better place. And, um, and for a war to break out and his family to leave, you, you see how, how sad that is for people, just how, how sad. Um, and I, I think Lebanon isn't alone in that way or other countries like that. But I think the U.S., until maybe this year, um, you haven't, you, people would joke sometimes, oh, I'm moving to Canada <laughs> um, if X is elected or, you know, whatever. But I think now people, people may be being more seriously considering moving that way. And that's a, that's a very sad way, a sad reason for migration. And yet it's also a, a very um, common one. You know, that's how my dad ended up leaving his home country. Um, my grand, my Irish grandparents left because of, you know, lack of economic opportunity where they were from. Um, and and I, I, I would find it really sad to leave here because of, of fighting. Um, maybe in an only in the positive sense, if there isn't that sort of fighting, you know, my husband and I talk about, you know, uh, re, um, rebuilding, you know, really old Lebanese house, you know, and putting in a vineyard and becoming cheese makers <laughs> and all these wonderful Mediterranean outdoor activities. Uh, so I haven't lost hope. Um, I still am optimistic. We still, you know, work towards that end. Um, but we also, as friends have pointed out, we have U.S. passports and we, you know, have them ready to go. And we have the cash of money that Lebanese have to keep in the safe with the with the passports. And if it comes down to it, we, you know, we go, you buy the ticket, you have your to-go bag and, and you leave. No. Um, and that's something that I never would have considered if I had... Or, thought of had I not lived in Lebanon. Yeah, I can't imagine just having like a go bag ready with my passport, just ready to flee at any given point. Yeah. It's very... Yeah. I do have a follow-up question to that. Actually, I'm curious, sort of, do you, like, with the currency Lebanese devaluing, do you sort of go out of your way to stockpile dollars in cash? Like, how do you get access to it? Like, what's that situation like? We definitely do. Um, oh, we, um, and a grocery shop. We, uh, you know, I, I, although I think people in the U.S. did this for COVID too, but, you know, I went because we're now in hyperinflation. So um, before we got there, I did like a massive purchase of like all these soap and other imported products and then grains and legumes and things that were in jars. So I, I have now this huge pantry that... I, but it's also because now, say, beef is, in, under the old conversion rate, beef is about uh, $40 a pound, wait, $25 a pound oh under the God. old conversion rate. If I have dollars to, you know, to convert, then I, you know, you can still live very well, but if you just mm -hmm. have Lebanese currency, that it's very expensive. Uh, so we had to get money together in order to um, send to my 
older son who's now studying in the U.S. Um, at a boarding school, as I said earlier. So there are informal capital controls. So you, they can only let you take out a certain amount of currency, uh, Lebanese currency, and then you have to exchange it on the black market, obviously, on a bad, a bad rate. Yeah. Then you bring those mm -hmm. quote-unquote fresh dollars into the bank, and they will transfer only those fresh dollars outside the country for you. They, they, uh, and so just ridiculous. I, I was walking around with a bag full of Lebanese currency with my older son, and he's very tall, my son, my older son. He's like 6'4", although pretty thin. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was like, I can't believe you have all this money in your bag. I was like, yeah, you and me both. And so we went and exchanged <laughs> it. And then we're walking out of the exchange house, and people will assume that, of course, you have dollars. Prime, I would argue, is still relatively low in Lebanon, but it's increased. And he's like, what am I, your bodyguard? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so the, in order to get the money transferred, they actually wanted us to put the fresh dollars into an ATM at the bank. So the ATM is happens to be on the street. So I was standing there, and I was inserting, how much was it? $8,000 in $100 bills into the ATM. And my son was kind of like blocking me. And I'm like, how, how, you know, I'm like, I'm from the suburbs west of Boston. How did I end up doing this? I mean, what, what is, you know, so I, that's a long way to say yes, yes. And again, we're totally lucky to have this problem of, of, of you know, mm -hmm. having enough money to convert. But we had to, like, you know, we had to borrow cash from my in-laws because we didn't, couldn't take out enough cash at one time. Yeah. It was, it's, it takes up a lot of mental energy. Um, like a lot of hoops to jump through for something. A lot of hoops to could jump be through. Could yeah. be simple. Yeah. So, so unfortunately, we are at time. I can definitely say that I learned a lot from speaking with you again. And it was great sort of to catch up and learn about your journey and your story. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's it's always particularly lovely for a former student to reach out and say, you know, something, you know, things that we talked about in course, I actually still think about, and I'd like to talk about it more. Um, <laughs> that, you know, it's just, it's just really, really wonderful. You know, it's something I think about all the time. Like, what's the push factor behind that? Like, even when I'm just talking to people that I, I meet in a bar, I'm just being a complete weirdo about them and their journey. <laughs> Yes. Do you have any like projects, publications, or social media handles that you want to share and shout out? No pressure if you don't. Um, not right now. I should. Um, I'm teaching a gender and migration uh, graduate level course. Mm -hmm. uh, and a great thing about that is that it's just to it gives me this little bubble of, of, the, of my week where I have these great students, 36, a huge, it's a huge mm -hmm. online course. Um, but, you know, students who are working for UNHCR in the Bekaa Valley with Syrian refugees, people who work on um, uh, like a sexual abuse hotline, people in the media. So there's all this great stuff going on in Lebanon and coming out of Lebanon. And um, and I I don't want people to, to to only think of the country as a basket case. It 
in some ways it is a basket case, but at the very same time, it has a lot of creative, fantastic stuff going on. Um, and so I'd really encourage people, you know, get some, find some Lebanese wine, of course, the Lebanese food, mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, Lebanese literature, Lebanese films. Um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff. Well, I hope if there's anything people have to take away from this episode, that Lebanon has such a rich and engaging culture. And I hope that they can have a little slice of Lebanon in their lives. I hope so, right. too. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Okay. Thank you so much, Aiden. <laughs> take care. That was a really good talk. I think I'm definitely leaving this with a better understanding of the situation in Lebanon and the aftermath of the blast. These things still persist even as the news cycle passes and the public consciousness sort of shifts away. If you want to help with the situation in Lebanon, I advise donations to the Lebanese Red Cross, the main provider of emergency services in the country. But if you want to hear more about real stories of migration from real people, then hit that subscribe button wherever you get your favorite podcast. Follow us on Instagram at pushpullfactor and check out our website at pushpullfactor.com. Have a good one.